Thank you, choir. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you in the room may be baseball fans. I'm sort of one myself, but I watched all of the World Series games last week because the Texas Rangers were able to win their very first world championship in franchise history. And my wife got tired of me saying, you know, in 2011, they were one strike away from winning the World Series two different times, but missed it by just that much. I watched it also, of course, because we have a, a local on the team, uh, Rachel Cox's cousin, Evan Carter, is uh, a rising star on the Texas Rangers from Elizabethan. And also because uh, one of their relief pitchers, Cody Bradford, grew up in my church in Texas and I baptized him once upon a time, a long time ago. Uh, but whether you're a baseball fan or not, you do know, I'm sure, that you only get three strikes at the plate. After three strikes, you're out. There is no grace. There is no reprieve. There is no do-over. There is no second chance, three strikes, and you're out. Well, I'm glad that God is more forgiving than baseball umpires, because if He weren't, the Apostle Peter would be experiencing eternal darkness rather than enjoying the bliss of heaven, because just as Jesus predicted, Peter denied his Lord three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. And it wasn't the first time Peter had goofed up either. We're going to talk about that this morning for a bit as we witness the agony of recognizing that you've disappointed the Lord. The text for the message is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 to 75, so I invite your attention there. Um, it comes... In the courtyard, I suppose you might say, after Jesus had been arrested, to refresh your memory, back in chapter 26, Jesus had said uh, that everyone would fall away on account of Him. But Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, if you are able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of our scripture passage for the sermon. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 69, it tells us, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately. A rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
And he went outside and wept bitterly. Thank you. Please take your seats. Now, before Jesus was arrested, Peter was proclaiming his undying allegiance. Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him, and, and Peter said, no, 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 I'll, never, I'll go with you all the way to death if necessary. This episode that we've just read recounts the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy of Peter's denials. How was it that Peter made such an extreme shift in such a short period of time? Well, I think at the very least, Peter might have been confused. Not long before his denials, as, as Jesus was being arrested, the Scripture tells us in Matthew, it's not, he's not named, but elsewhere he is, that Peter drew a sword and, and, and tried to defend Jesus. He struck off the ear of the high priest's servant named Malchus. But Jesus rebuked him. He said, put your sword away. Those who take up the sword will die by the sword. I could call 12 legions of angels to assist me if necessary. And this is not going to fulfill the, the Scripture. And so Peter wondered, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to defend you or, or not? Do I stand with you or not? He was no doubt confused as a result of what had, going on, had been going on. But whatever the cause, these denials have to mark the lowest point in Peter's life, I would say. And we know from the Gospels that Peter had more than his share of bad moments. Peter was always the first to speak and usually would say the wrong thing. He would bite off more than he could chew. Someone said Peter only ever opened his mouth to change feet because he so often put his foot in his mouth. Someone else once described Peter as being the disciple most likely to have his last words be, Hey, y'all, watch this. Even after Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter wasn't perfect. Paul had to correct Peter for being inconsistent in his relationships with Gentile Christians when the Jewish Christians were around. And so Peter is an encouragement to us precisely because he so often goofed up. That's an encouragement to us. But if we were to ask Peter today, well, what was your very worst moment? Of all the things that you flubbed up, what was the worst mistake you ever made? And I am certain that he would say it was when I denied my Lord Jesus. It was indeed a terrible, disloyal, cowardly, sinful thing to do. When you think about it, could there be any worse sin than to deny the Lord? I can't imagine what could be worse than that. And yet Peter did it, not once, not twice. He did it three times. A major league strikeout, if ever there were one. As we look at this, I want you to notice a few things as we talk about Peter's strikeout, if you will. I want you to notice the escalation of Peter's denial that Matthew puts out here for us. The first denial that Peter made was just simply pleading ignorance. This servant girl said, uh, 
You were with Jesus, weren't you? But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. I, I, I'm, I'm unaware of whatever it is you're... I'm, I'm ignorant of those things. But then his second denial, when another young lady saw him, it says that he, he swore with an oath that he didn't know what was going on, that he didn't know Jesus. Something like, I swear by heaven, I don't know him. Matthew doesn't record the exact oath that he took, but he did. And then finally, the third time, he denies with a curse. May God strike me dead if I know who this man is. There is a spiritual principle in operation here. And that is the progressive nature of unbelief and disobedience. It gets progressively worse. The longer we persist in saying no to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to repent and be saved, the harder it is to sense that prompting. The more our spiritual ears grow callous and plugged and unable to hear the still small voice of God convicting us of our sin. That's why children and adolescents and teenagers are more likely to make professions of faith in Christ than adults are. And why conversions among adults are so infrequent, especially as they grow older. I once heard Billy Graham say during the invitation time of one of his evangelism events, something to the effect of this. He said, if you're an adult and you sense the slightest prompting of the Holy Spirit tonight to give your life to Christ, I don't want you to walk down the aisles I want you to hurry down the aisles because this may be your last chance. The older you get, the longer you resist, the harder it becomes to say yes to Christ. And if anyone should know from witnessing such things, it would certainly have been Billy Graham. In the late 1800s, a man named Edwin Starbuck conducted some groundbreaking studies on conversions to Christianity. And his research discovered that the age at which conversion to Christ most often occurred in his generation was 15.6 years of age. And not much has changed in the generation since. In 1979, Virgil Gillespie reported that the average age of conversion in America was 16 years of age. Just this week, I received a, a brochure from Child Evangelism Fellowship that cited research by the Barna Research Group that said 64% of believers accept Christ by the age of 14. That means nearly two out of every three people who believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ started that journey before they were 14 years old. That's why our youth and children's ministries are so important. That's why it's necessary that we invest in them the way we do. We need to reach young people while their hearts are still tender and receptive before they grow hard and resistant because there is a progressive nature to unbelief. There is also a progressive nature to disobedience. 
the longer we persist in disobedience and sin, the harder it becomes to recognize the sinfulness of our behavior. We become desensitized to it. Chuck Swindoll tells a story about when he was a junior in high school. He worked for the Houston Press for a couple of years throwing a paper route. It was the way young people earned spending money back in those days. And one day after folding about 200 newspapers and delivering them all on his bicycle, he was exhausted and he was headed for home. Eventually, though, he came to the backyard of a large house at the corner across the street from his house. And he says, I, I thought to myself, I'm tired. There's no need to go all the way down to the end of the street and around this big yard. I'll just cut across and be home in a flash. He says it was quick and easy. It was a nice shortcut. He said, the first time I did that, I entertained a little twinge of guilt as I rode my bike across that nice plush grass. You need to understand, he said, this was a beautiful yard. And to make matters worse, our neighbor was very particular about it. I'd watched him manicure it week after week. Still, I figured it wouldn't hurt just this once. Late the next afternoon, I came tooling down that same street thinking, I wonder if I ought to use that same shortcut. I did, he said, with less guilt than the first time. Theoretically, something told me I shouldn't, but practically, I rationalized around the wrong. In less than two weeks, he said, my bicycle tires had begun to wear a narrow path across the yard. By then I knew in my heart I really should be going down and around the corner, but I didn't. I just shoved all those guilt feelings aside and out of sight. By the end of the third week, he says, a small but very obvious sign appeared near the sidewalk, blocking the path I had made. It read, keep off the grass, no bikes. Everything but my name was on the sign, he said. I confess, I ignored it. I went around the sign and rode right on over the path, glancing at the sign as I rode by. He says, admittedly, I felt worse. Why? He said, the sign identified my sin, which in turn intensified my guilt. God repeatedly puts signs in our paths to try to get our attention, to try to turn us around. Signs that come from the Scripture, for example. Signs from fellow believers, from sermons or Christian programs or books that we read, or even sometimes crowing rooster. If we don't respond to the more subtle signs, sometimes... God makes even more obvious overtures toward us. A longtime friend of mine used to say, sometimes God has to hit me upside the head with a two-by-four to get my attention. But notice and remember, if you feel guilty, it may be because you're trying to ride around some sign that God has put up in your path to try to turn you away from the sin that is literally sucking the life out of you. To turn instead to a path of repentance and, and productivity in the kingdom of God. 
a path towards life and away from death. When Peter heard the rooster crow that morning, it was God's sign revealing to Peter the sin that he had committed. And to Peter's credit, he recognized it. And it broke his heart. He repented, went out and wept with bitter tears, the Bible says. Matthew doesn't share it, but Luke's gospel includes something that Matthew leaves out. At the end of what is verse 74 in Matthew, which says that Peter began to call down curses on himself and swore he didn't know Jesus. Immediately a rooster crowed, it said. And then Luke's gospel says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what that look must have felt like to Peter? Was it a look of hurt and disappointment that what may have been his very closest friend on earth, Peter, the one he'd invested so much time in, had denied him three times? Or might it have been a look of love and grace? Either way, It had to have cut Peter to the quick. As Christians, our greatest, highest honor, our most pursued reward is to hear Jesus say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. This had to have been the polar opposite of that. Not the highest honor, but the most stinging rebuke, whatever that look may have been. Now you can talk about the fires of hell, the torturous agony of eternity and torment, the ceaseless anguish, the unending distress, the eternal heartache, the suffering, the sorrow, the grief, the misery and despair that awaits all of those who reject God's offer of grace in Jesus Christ. And certainly that is horrible, the worst thing we could ever imagine. But I would rather suffer a thousand times the torments of hell for 10,000 eternities than to have to endure for one brief moment the look on the face of my Lord that Peter must have seen that cold, lonely dawn with the crow of the rooster echoing in his ears. And I hope you feel that way too. Jesus had predicted what Peter was going to do. That tells us something as well. When Jesus called Peter to follow him and to serve him, he already knew what Peter's weaknesses were. He already knew what kind of person Peter had been. That's an encouragement to us as well, friends. When we goof up, and we all goof up, we can remind ourselves that God loves us, that God has acted to redeem us, that we can become what Peter became. When we feel like failures in serving the Lord, we can remind ourselves God knew 
what our capabilities were when He called us into His service. Just as He knew what Peter's were when He called Peter to serve Him. Peter repented, as we know. He was forgiven. He was restored. He went on to become the most revered of all God's saints, a pillar of the church. That's the good news. Christ came to save us from ourselves. When we fail, we can be forgiven because Christ has paid for our sins on the cross. It means there is hope for us when we strike out. Even though we may have committed the worst sins imaginable, what sin could be worse than denying the Lord Jesus? Even though we may already have three strikes against us or 3,000 strikes against us, if we will just admit our brokenness, God can put us back together again. Only God can put us back together again. Vance Havner said, God uses broken things, broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. He said, it is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. If we'll do what Peter did and simply admit our brokenness to the Lord, and give it to Him in humility and repentance and trust. God will fix it. And God will put us to work in His service. Three strikes doesn't mean you're out in God's economy. You can still hit a home run in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are (laughs) that you did not give up on Peter. How encouraging it is to read of his mistakes and sins and and errors in the Scripture, the, the strikes that he made over and over and over again. And Lord... May we be like Peter in acknowledging our strikes in life, our sins, our rebelliousness. May we bring our brokenness to you for you to repair and restore, that you might use us as you used Peter. May we be like him, not in this, the lowest point of his life, but rather like Peter at the pinnacle of his courage on the day of Pentecost, proclaiming his faith to thousands. Lord, speak to us in this moment. Open our ears. Let us hear your still small voice calling us to allegiance to you, to repentance and faith if we need that. God, you work in our hearts And may we be responsive to that work. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation and response. I don't know what your thinking may be today, whether you are are discouraged because you, you keep swinging and missing, 
and you think, surely God is going to give up on me. Well, I hope you'll be encouraged by Peter's story today. God didn't give up on him, and God's not giving up on you. It may be that you are like Peter in these denials. When, when someone speaks to you and, and says, now, now you're a Christian, right? You, you go to that church downtown, right? Uh, I hope that you'll have the courage to say, yes, absolutely. Who wouldn't be? Jesus Christ changed my life. He can change yours. If you need to resolve today to, to be more courageous in owning Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, I hope that you'll make that commitment today. You know, when we were in grade school, every day of the year we would stand and pledge allegiance to the flag. How often, how well do we pledge allegiance to our Lord Jesus? If the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning, you listen and you respond appropriately. Let's stand to our feet.